in the Sundays immediately following Easter, we replace the Old Testament lesson with a lesson from the book of Acts. And so you'll see in our church services that instead of referring to it as the Old Testament reading, which it is not, uh, we refer to it as the first reading. And this is just an opportunity for us to see the church continuing in, uh, you might say, continuing in the ministry of proclaiming the risen Christ. And uh, so we see that. We're also going to see this year uh, a continuation of epistle lessons from 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so this gives us an opportunity to read through those epistles. So we've really kind of got a, a couple of things going on here. Uh, looking at the book of Acts, as we see the New Testament church just exploding in growth from uh, uh, from Pentecost on, we're kind of, it's, it's interesting, we're going to be beyond Pentecost, uh, both this week and next week, and then when we get to Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, we'll come back and read the Pentecost account, so I realize this can be a little bit confusing, but we're going to go back and forth in the book of Acts uh, coming up in these, in these next weeks. And with that then, let's launch into the first one that we have, uh, again, there are sheets here. For those of you who are here in our gymnasium, we have sheets available with these readings on them. But uh, the first one is from Acts chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 11 and go through verse 21. That's the first reading for next Sunday. And uh, let's just begin with just a portion of verse 11. It says there, while he clung to Peter and John. Now, when you start reading that, what's your first question? Who's the he? That's exactly right. Where does this guy come from? And so to kind of get the context here, we've got to go back. And I'll just read, those of you that have a Bible, we're going to go back a few verses here. Uh, actually, probably right at the start of chapter 3, there is a, uh, a lame uh, man who is a beggar, and he is going to be healed. Okay? And he is the one who is going to cling to Peter and John. But let's read through that account just to kind of, again, give us some context here. So Acts 3, starting at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried. Now, again, uh, we won't spend too much time on this, but whenever someone had a condition from birth, Remember, Jesus came, and uh, the man who had been born blind, and remember the question that his disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned that this man should be born blind, he or his parents? And, of course, the answer was neither, that Jesus gives, uh, but that God may be glorified. Well, same thing here. This man has been lame since birth, and notice he was being carried uh, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So as someone who was lame, it's, it's really interesting and kind of neat that there were people who carried him every day. And being lame from birth, he was reduced to simply begging uh, for his existence. And the Jews many times were very good at the giving of alms for people like this. And so he was carried every day. You'd see him there at the beautiful gate. We don't know exactly which gate this is. We think it might have been on the eastern side. And every day people would have passed by this guy. They would have seen him every day as, as they went to the temple, as they went by. He would have been a fixture there uh, begging for alms. 
So verse uh, 3 then, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. So he's kind of saying, focus on us, look at us now. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So just as Jesus healed so many people of their illnesses, Neither did the members of the Sanhedrin. Now, I don't know. That might be putting the best construction on everything, right? Uh, they simply they, they knew who he claimed to be and who his followers claimed him to be. And they absolutely denied it. They absolutely rejected him as that. In fact, they put him on the other side of the ledger as, as one who was leading people away from God and not obeying the Sabbath, and, and, you know, just the exact opposite. So, maybe being a little generous here to say they were, they were ignorant, but he, he does. Might, maybe trying to soften them up here a little bit, right? Not insult them, but soften them up a little bit here. So, verse 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And you, know, you think about the Old Testament, and again, I, when you think about the fact uh, of it being predicted that Christ is going to suffer, uh, I always, my mind always goes to Isaiah 52 and 53, right? Uh, quote from, for example, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole, and by his stripes we are healed. And then it's the lamb before his shears was done, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, that whole section. And again, we want to remember that was written 700 years before Christ even walked this earth. And yet it is such a precise description of his crucifixion. So what, what Peter is saying here is that not only is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and this Christ one, but our prophets, the prophets predicted all of this. And Jesus fulfilled it. In other words, here were the predictions. Jesus perfectly fulfilled them. Okay? So going on then, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. And repenting, remember, is a change, a turning of the mind, a change of the mind. I'm going one way. I turn around and go the other way. And as Lutherans, it's, we, we would want to emphasize always it's not just contrition or sorrow for my sin that is repentance, but along with that, a faith or a trust in the forgiveness of sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things uh, go together when we talk about repenting of sin. So turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. 
Uh, there's a, it's a beautiful word in the original language. It means literally, if you've got a stain, for example, and you blot it out so that it does not remain any longer. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what we could compare it to, like uh, uh, bleaching something, but you blot out the stain. It's like a stain is in a material. You blot it out, and you can't see it anymore. It's gone. And that's the picture that's used here for our sins, being blotted out. And verse 20, beautiful verse. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? Refreshment comes from our Lord in knowing that our sins are completely blotted out. It, it is, they no longer exist. Um, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So even at this point, he can still send them Jesus. Not, not physically in walking this earth again, but through faith. So he's, it's as if he's saying to them, even for you at this point, it's not too late. Even though you did all of this, it's not too late. Remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth as he hung there on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And right here, Peter has told them, it was out of your ignorance that you did this. You didn't know what you were doing. And even now, repent, and the Father can send this same Jesus to you. What does that tell us about people in our lives that maybe have resisted and rejected every day we can remember in their lives? Uh, as long as they are able to draw breath uh, on this earth yet, it is still not too late. And God can still send his son via faith uh, created through the word. So. Uh, if even these people who, who ended up turning over and denying Christ uh, can have the Christ sent to them and believe and have their, their sins blotted out and have a time of refreshing from God, so can anybody else. Okay? Um, verse 21, whom heaven must receive, so heaven is necessary for heaven to receive Christ, until the time for restoring all the things... So what is that time of restoring all the things? What are we referring to there? Yeah, the last day or the, the second coming of Christ, however you want to refer to it, when, as we said before, all remnants of sin are done completely away with and uh, restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There again, that connection between the prophets and Jesus. Okay? All right. Let's stop there for just a moment uh, before we go on and read the epistle lesson from 1 John. Are there any questions or comments about this incident or about anything that Peter says here? No? All right, then. Let's go on to 1 John. Remember I said at the beginning that we're going to have a series of weeks here that we're going to be in the epistles of John. And they, they are written, of course, by... The same, it's the same John who wrote the Gospel according to John and the Revelation. Okay? So same John, and he's an elderly man uh, at this time in his life. He um, is sort of, you might say, the earthly speaking, the father of the, the Christians in Asia Minor. The uh, tradition is that after he was exiled to the island of Patmos, um, he, he 
we think, was sentenced to be burned in a barrel of oil and escaped that fate somehow, and instead was, was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, where he uh, received the, the revelation, and we think after that spent his last years in the city of Ephesus and uh, was caring for someone whom Christ told him to care for. You remember who that would be? His mother Mary, right, on the cross, said, uh, Behold your mother, and to her behold your son. And uh, so it's this John, and you notice uh, he's sort of the elder statesman at this time. He's the only one still around who, who uh, literally uh, walked with Jesus at this time and saw the resurrected Lord. So you can imagine, he was uh, quite well known. Now, the issues that are at hand here in, uh, as we look at the epistles of John, there are some people who used to be in the Christian church and for some reason pulled out. Uh, they're called the secessionists. They, they pulled out of the church, living apart from the church, and started teaching some very strange things. And they were apparently being quite effective in luring some of the actual Christians away. Uh, they were teaching things that they denied, for example, that Jesus came in the flesh, physical body. Okay, And it was sort of a denigration of any of the physical things. The idea was to, to laud the spirit or our soul. So they denied Jesus came physically. They said it didn't matter if you sinned anymore because your body's going to be destroyed when you die anyway. So just go out and do whatever you want, sinning. And they would not, uh, they felt it wasn't necessary to show love towards someone else. So that's why, when you, if you haven't gone to church yet uh, today, you go to the late service, listen to the way John attacks two things in the epistle lesson, and we're going to see it here as well. Sinning, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? Or no one who walks in the light continues sinning. And then, uh, listen for how he emphasizes how Christians are to show love toward one another. It's not just that he decided to emphasize these things. He's combating false teachers who are running around saying exactly that. That you can go on and sin. In fact, they didn't even call it sin anymore because on the last day your body's going to be destroyed anyway. So they fought, and that's wrong, of course. But... Uh, and then you didn't have to worry about showing love to anybody else. That wasn't important, okay? And so we'll see John continuing to hammer away at both of those themes. All right? Let's read 1 through 7 just to get the whole uh, picture here, and then we'll go back and, and take it apart a bit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Okay, so does that make a little more sense now? See how he's hammering away at the continued sinning without repentance. And notice how the emphasis uh, at the beginning on the love that God has shown to us. So let's go back to verse 1. Uh, see, or it's a command, behold, what kind of. And so you get the idea here. It's, it's how wonderful is this love that the Father has, notice, given to us. You get that gift language there, that we should be called the children of God. And what's the implication there? Do we have any right to be called children of God in any way? No. It, you know, it's kind of, it, it's almost as if he's saying something along the lines of, how unbelievable is this love that we should be called the children of God. In other words, we had no right to expect anything like this. And notice what kind of, or, or how wonderful this love is. And notice there, uh, at the end, uh, uh, middle of verse uh, 1, uh, are, is it that we're just called the children of God? He says, and so we are, right? It's not just that we're called this. We are the children of God. Then, the reason the world... now. The world, in this case, John uses this many times, the world, as sort of a shorthand way of referring to the anti-Christian forces, okay? So it's another way of saying that you might, uh, in parentheses, say that the sinful world, okay, or the unbelieving world, um, in contrast to the Spirit, does not know us, in other words, us as apostles, in, uh, is that it did not know him. In other words, did not know Jesus, doesn't know us. Is that still the case today when it comes to the unbelieving world? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. In fact, it even seems like it's getting uh, more and more that, again, doesn't know us, can't understand why we do certain things or don't do certain things, why we take certain positions on things. And again, the, the result is it's not that they just don't know us, they don't know the one who is the source. They don't know Jesus. So we shouldn't, it's almost as if we shouldn't be surprised, right? We shouldn't be shocked. They didn't know him, they're not going to know his followers. Okay? Then going on, uh, verse uh, 2 here, beloved, notice again the, the uh, close language he uses here. We are God's children now. In other words, this is a present reality. We're not just called his children, we are his children now. And what will be, now what do you think he's talking about here? What will be has not yet appeared. When's, when's that going to be, do you think? Second coming, yeah. What we will be has not yet appeared, obviously, because the second coming hasn't come yet, right? Now, we have some descriptions in Scripture as to what we'll, we will be at that time, especially, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about our bodies being incorruptible and immortal and so on. Uh, now, now we see through a, a glass dimly, then we will see face to face. So we, it's not as though we have no information, 
But again, that we're, we're only trying with our limited mind to, to understand somehow, some way, what that's going to be like, okay? And so it, it's enough to say that right now we are God's children, as he says there. What we will be, in other words, when Christ returns, has not yet appeared or has not been made known yet because it, it hasn't been appeared, appeared yet. Uh, but we know that when he is, we shall be like him. Uh, again, glorified without sin any longer in our bodies or around us. We can't imagine what that's going to be like, an existence without any sin, uh, because we will see him as he is. Um, now, what's the reason in verse 3, do you think, any, everyone who thus hopes in him or in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. What's he driving at again? Remember these people who left and are not purifying themselves. Now we have to be careful here because we, we wouldn't want to misread this as if to say that we make ourselves pure, right, in the sight of God. There's only one way to be made pure in the sight of God and that's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But then there is this daily battle that we all have with sin in our lives, right? Paul talks about that in Romans 7. The good that I know that I should do, what? It's not what I end up doing. It's the evil that I don't want to do that I end up doing. It's a daily struggle, isn't it, in this world, unfortunately. And remember our dual identity, we are both Saints and sinners, right. So it's kind of like we're walking a, a two-step here. We're, we're saints in the eyes of God, completely forgiven, completely righteous, but yet we know as we confess that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. Okay. So it's that latter part that John is going to be attacking here. Not the way we're made right in the sight of God, but that daily struggle with sin. And amidst false teachers who are saying, it doesn't matter, just go and do whatever you want, he's saying, no. If you belong to Christ, you are about the business of purifying yourself, or in other words, turning away from sin uh, on a daily basis. Okay? So it's kind of the idea that if we're his children, we should be starting to look more and more like him, right? It should be a family resemblance there in a way, when you stop and think about it. Okay? And so, uh, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So, uh, uh, continued, ongoing sinning also practices lawlessness. See, this is, this is pretty stringent language here. There, there are words for sin that are used in the Bible. One is sort of missing the mark. That's the one that we see a lot. Like, you've got a target out there which is what God wants you to hit, and you pull back your bow with your arrow, and you shoot the arrow, and it misses the mark. That's one word. There's another word that is translated like a trespass, that I've got a line here that God has said, stay over here and don't go over here, and when I sin, I step over that line and I trespass. This one is even more severe. This is a rejection of a standard. Lawlessness. There's a standard that God has given, and I am rejecting it by my continued outright sin. 
So this is the most stringent of the, of the language when it comes to a, an habitual, ongoing sin. Now, this is a dangerous thing. And this is why, as pastors, uh, unfortunately, there are times where we have to say to someone, uh, you know, this is an ongoing, habitual practice in your life. And you do have today, it, it is just amazing that you do have people today that um, they just sort of, well, that's your opinion, and, you know, I've got mine. And it's, it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, I won't go into individual practices, but there are some practices today that are condoned in certain circles uh, in our society. And if you speak against them, if you uh, call a member uh, into your office and say to them, I'm sorry, but this is not pleasing in the sight of God. This is apart from his will for you. And, and unfortunately, there seems to be no repentance on their part. And at that point, we have to ask, uh, not ask them, tell them that until such time that there is such repentance, that they are no longer welcome at the Lord's table. It would be hypocritical to do anything but. So it doesn't, now I want you to think this happens every day, not by, <laughs> by a long shot. But when it does happen, it does sort of take you aback because there's just a complete lack of repentance and a complete lack of any acknowledgement that, of what you're saying. And uh, that's, that's a sad thing. And that's just what's going on here. And he's trying to get them to see this. Um, verse uh, 5 um, you know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, right? Think of John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in him there is no sin. Verse 6, No one who abides in him, no one who uh, lives in him, keeps on sinning. And understood here again, this continued, unrepentant, habitual sinning, no one, who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Harkens back again, the world not knowing him, right? You can't know him and be acting this way. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. All right. Any, we'll stop here before we go on to the gospel. Any other comments or questions on this part? Yes. Yeah, okay, so the question was, what, uh, the, and it's correctly stated, that the purpose of pointing someone's sin like this out to them is not to drive them away, but quite the opposite, that there would be repentance, that there would be a coming forth. Um, and, and then the question was, what have we seen? And I will say that it probably is about 50-50, that there are some you just rejoice when that happens, uh, I'll just tell you, I, I, just, I wasn't going to get specific, but I, the one thing that keeps coming up is living together before marriage. Uh, maybe you guessed that's what I was talking about. And, um, uh, you know, the Bible's pretty, well, very clear about sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia in the New Testament, very clear about this. There are a few things the Bible is more clear about. And um, so sometimes we, we get them separated and everything's just great. And other times we may not see them again. And there will be other places where they can go and get done a wedding done. So that's... Of course, the 50% that haven't come back haven't come back yet. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. The 50% that haven't come back haven't come back yet. There is still... Yeah, it's a good connection to what we talked about in the first, first
first lesson as well from Book of Acts. Okay? Yes, Jim? Yeah, and the question, I guess I would kind of almost quote back, you know, these verses from John, that no one who abides in Christ is doing these things. And, and pointing out again where, where the Word of God addresses these. In other words, we don't, whenever we do this, it's not that I say, well, it's my opinion or, you know, this is what I say. We go to what the Word says and show them exactly where it addresses the subject so that, you know, the quarrel, I never want the quarrel to be with me or uh, I know our other, our two other pastors feel the same way. It's never a quarrel with us. It's, you've got a, you've got a quarrel with God here, really. You know, if you're saying this is okay and here's what His Word says, something's not right here. You know. So I always, we always put the focus back on the Word and not, not on ourselves for that. Okay? Yes, Nancy? Yeah, yeah. the comment was that uh, many people probably in this situation don't consider it a sin or don't realize, perhaps, that it is a sin. And yes, that uh, we've definitely seen that as well, And at which point we tell them about it. Some people, you know, when, when they get a call to come on and see us and, and they come together, uh, they kind of know in the back, and, and they'll even say something, yeah, I kind of thought that was what you were going to be talking to us about, you know. Uh, but yet, you're right, because it's so prevalent that some people say, well, gee, I, you know, I got three friends that I know of that are, you know, three different couples that are... Uh, and so that's sort of just, you know, again, the, the whole thing of living in the world around us and letting the world kind of influence even our thinking about what's right or wrong or, you know, our actions, uh, you can really see that kind of permeating uh, things. That's why it's good for us to, you know, to continue uh, pointing this out, pointing these things out as we go. All right, anything else? All right, finally, the gospel lesson. And uh, just to clarify the context here, this is Easter evening. The, the gospel lesson that we heard in church today from John 20, remember, was Easter evening. Christ is there, or the disciples, I'm sorry, are there. And remember, one disciple's not, Thomas, and Jesus appears to them, okay? Then uh, today's gospel lesson continues in John 20 to the following Sunday when Christ appears with Thomas there, and Thomas is brought to faith by the risen Christ. What we're going to look at is Luke's account of Easter evening, that same uh, account, in the upper room. Now, let's think about what's happened. Christ has risen from the dead in the morning. He's appeared to Mary Magdalene. He's appeared to Cephas, to Peter. We don't know exactly where that was. Remember, then in the afternoon, you got the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. Okay? And Jesus appears to them. And it's, it's almost kind of comical. You know, he walks along. They don't recognize him. And are you the only guy in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened? And, and uh, then finally in the breaking of the bread, they recognize him. Then remember, they run back, and they find the disciples in the upper room. So we think that they're probably there at this point as well. Everybody's abuzz with what's going on today. And, you know, they're, they're almost uh, wondering what in the world is going on. And if they would have just thought, right, uh, how many times Christ told them, and on the third day rise again, you know, it might have, it might have sunk in. But let's, let's read this then. Uh, Luke 24, starting at verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, well, what things? Everything that's happened, you know? The women coming back and the reports that the tomb is empty, Peter and John running to the tomb and finding it empty, the angel, the message of the angel, everything 
Uh, they're talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. A very significant uh, greeting. Peace to you. In the midst of all their turmoil. Verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Okay, so he, it's interesting here that the disciples had almost the same reaction as Thomas, right? They're kind of disbelieving here at first, thinking this is some kind of uh, spirit or phantom. And Jesus, notice again that the level of condescension that Jesus practices here for them so that they would believe right he shows him his hands um, uh, he says uh, his hands and his feet see my hands and my feet that it is I myself now why would he show them his hands and his feet nail marks right yeah from the crucifixion so in other words it's not just some guy who walked in and off the street who looks like me it's the same guy who was up there on the cross, right? It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they... Now, now, what's, the, now what's the reason for their disbelief? And while they were disbelieved for joy... <laughs> so, in other words... Uh, first, they're disbelieving because they, they think it's a spirit. Now they're so filled with joy, they can't believe it. So we have that expression, what? It's too good to be true. This is kind of where they're at now. They're, they're not doubting that it's him anymore. They know it's him. But it's almost like it's too good to be true, right? And they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. What's so special about that? Body, yes. Notice here the great lengths that Luke goes to. And remember, what was Luke's occupation? Physician. So notice the great lengths that Luke goes to here to demonstrate for us the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. He even eats in front of them, right? So as if maybe... They're thinking, oh, he, you know, maybe those are just marks somehow in a spirit. He, he has them touch him, and he eats fish in front of them. Okay? Now, it's not just for those disciples. That's for us, isn't it? To, again, emphasize the physical bodily resurrection. And as Paul says in Romans 6, that if we have shared through baptism a death like his, we will share also a resurrection like his. A physical, bodily resurrection. Okay? So that is just coming through so loud and clear here in, the, in Luke's account. Going on then, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me... In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, everything written about me 
in the Old Testament. And you've got, you know, the law of Moses, many times we'll, we'll think of that as the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books in the Old Testament, by the prophets and the Psalms, and probably would include there uh, the wisdom literature and so on of the Old Testament. All of that written about me must be fulfilled. Okay? And, uh, you know, it depends on how you count, but there are easily 200, and some would say as many as 300 references to Christ, and not just only predictions, but many different references to Christ in the Old Testament. And every chance we can, we swat down that old uh, mistaken idea that, well, you know, there's no good news in the Old Testament. It's just a bunch of laws and rules and regulations. No, Christ runs through the Old Testament like a, a golden thread, all the way from Genesis 3.15, where God promises he's going to send one to crush the head of Satan. And when he talks about it, he says he will. So there's a, there's a male descendant coming. And it, right from that point all the way on. Okay? So all of that in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. And when you stop and think about it, Jesus really fulfilled everything, not only, first of all, in the story of what was going to happen, the storyline that someone was going to come from God and crush the head of Satan, but he fulfilled and replaced all of the institutions in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. He fulfilled them all. And um, in, what way did he, in what way did he fulfill the idea of the tabernacle or the temple? That was the place where who dwelled with his people? God. Right there on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we don't need an, we don't need an Ark of the Covenant anymore. We don't need a mercy seat because God is walking right here in our midst in Jesus Christ. So he fulfilled all of the institutions that God set up in the Old Testament and surpassed them. They all pointed to the ultimate prophet, priest, and king who was going to come. He fulfills all the prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, right? Or Micah 5.2, that he's going to be born where? In Bethlehem, but you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, small among the clans of Judah, from you will come one who will rule my people. So he fulfills all of that. And uh, so, you know, finally, it's just all fulfilled in him. And that's what Jesus is opening their minds to see here on Easter evening. What a Bible class, huh? Wish we had it in greater detail. Uh, going on to verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Notice to whom? To all nations, not just to Jews, but to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Who is going to be this, as he puts it here, um, the promise from the Father who's going to bring power? Holy Spirit, exactly. And so stay here in Jerusalem. I'll send you the promise from the Father, and, you know, don't, in other words, don't go out and do this yet. You know, there's, gonna, there's a time and a place for this. 
He's going to send the Holy Spirit, and they will be his witnesses. And we'll see uh, what happens uh, on the day of Pentecost and how, how God does all of that, really, as those, those travelers are going to go back home to where they came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they're going to take with them the message of Christ as they go. Okay? All right. Uh, almost out of time. Let me stop here. Any comments or questions? So this, again, next Sunday... Easter Sunday again in the evening. Same thing we're hearing about today in church. We're going to hear about next Sunday from Luke's perspective. And Luke even bringing in that eating of fish by Jesus on, on Easter evening in the upper room. Okay? Any comments, questions? All right, let's close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Amen.